Alaskans, wherever you are, welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right in a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Welcome, everybody, to the Must Read Alaska Show. I'm your host, John Quick, coming to you live from somewhere in Alaska. I hope everybody's having a phenomenal day. Man, I can't wait for it to get warm around here. It has been cold for too long. And uh, for, the, for those of you that support Must Read Alaska, we want to thank you. If you listen, watch, or read us and want to help keep the lights on here at Must Read Alaska, just go to mustreadalaska.com. And on the right-hand side, there's a little button. Every $5, $10, $100 helps keep the lights on here at Must Read Alaska. If you want to sponsor the Must Read Alaska show, email me, John, J-O-H-N, at mustreadalaska.com. We are very thankful for folks that listen. We happen to be the number one Alaska news show in Alaska, which is very exciting. Without further ado, I have a very special guest, Rick Whitbeck, who is the director of the Alaska Power of the Future, and he has got some awesome things to talk to us about today. Rick, welcome to the Must Read Alaska show. Always appreciate the opportunity, John. It's uh, it is the number one uh, ranked for a reason, and uh, if I can add a little bit of, of insight to it, it's it's always good. Well, I'm super excited you're on. You you're a frequent guest guest here. Our folks really love and appreciate the work you do, which is being a champion for all things energy. Um, recently, you got to go to a very special event, CPAC. Tell us about the event. Tell us some inside behind the scenes stuff. Not everybody in Alaska gets to go to that, but you did talk to us about it. I did. I was actually offered an opportunity to go back to CPAC uh, my first time in the 50-year history of the event. Uh, Power of the Future was asked to be a participant, an exhibitor, and also have four of our uh, one-minute spots talking about how energy is on the ballot in 2024 played to uh, event goers out the conference. So we. We jumped at that chance. I went back to D.C., um, heard from great speakers, met a lot of patriots, met a lot, a lot of conservatives, and had a really, really good time back there just interacting with people um, from across the country and around the world who share the same values that you and I do and, and most of the people who uh, subscribe to the podcast. That's awesome. So talk to me a little bit about some of the guests that were there. It was probably the who's who of all things conservative in, in the United States. Did you get to hear any of them give their keynotes? What were some of the interesting things from some of those guests? Oh, I did. And President Trump was the was the highlight of the entire event. He spoke on Saturday afternoon, um, about, about 9 o'clock, 9.30. Well, I guess it started just before 10 o'clock Alaska time, just before 2 o'clock uh, in D.C. And joined by Steve Bannon. Ben Carson, Christy Nome, uh, Jim Sobek, um, there was no Nikki Haley. There was no reason for Haley to be there. Um, this is more of a, you know, America first group. Um, other people that were there, uh, uh, Jim Jordan and Matt Gantz and uh, Byron Donalds. It was really the who's who of the conservative movement here uh, across the U.S. Uh, Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas. Um, the people with the uh, uh, walk away, Brandon Straka, 
Um, I love Tim Stewart. He was he was part of a panel discussion. Tim is the president of the U.S. Oil and Gas Association, which is really more of a trade association for the small independent producers, kind of the small independent producers answer to the American Petroleum Institute. Both are fantastic organizations. We work with both of them very, very well at Power of the Future. But I'll tell you what, Tim had an, an, uh, a panel with R.J. Burr, who is the founder of Panex, which is an investment firm that, that, uh, that works with independent producers to raise capital and for you know, capital return, private investing. And then Andrew Wheeler, the former EPA administrator. I'll tell you oh, what, wow. that, panel, that panel was lit. Um, it was called Putting Our Heads <laughs> in the Gas Stove. And, uh, you know, we talked about the Biden administration's executive and administrative overreach. And, John, that panel was was phenomenal. But so many speakers talking about so many things, whether it was immigration, um, whether it was abortion, whether it was uh, human trafficking, you know, all those things that conservatives care about. Right. But under underneath all of that, on, on almost every speaker was energy. Almost everybody there talked about how energy um, underpins everything is responsible for, you know, uh, a lot of the extra costs in our in our family and our households. You know, all the things that Power of the Future has been saying for three years, Biden administration is wrecking havoc on Americans and they're doing it really, uh, you know, it, with energy in the forefront. So my last question on CPAC is this. You got I think you guys had a booth there. So you probably got to talk. You got to talk to just the folks that were there as attendees. What were some of the things you heard from them? Are they concerned? Are they hopeful for America? What was kind of the the tone of the just the everyday folks that were there? Well, so CPAC's um, motto this year, or you know, kind of vision statement was "Where globalism goes to die." That was the theme of the convention, and people understand that energy is a global situation. That Alaska's you know kind of the tip of the spear for so many opportunities, energy wise. Um, I heard from lots of people. I mean, we probably talked with. I don't know, half the attendees, so maybe well over 1,500 people over the, the course of, of the three days. Um, I had a lot of conversations with some really, really cool people from all over, including Alaska, Australia, um, Hungary, uh, uh, New Zealand, the UK, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Africa. I mean, there were people at CPAC from all of those places. Here's what I heard outside of the energy discussion, right? And, you know, you come to Power of the Future, you say, hey, what, what's Power of the Future all about? We talk about it. Oh man, my gas bill went up thirty five percent, or or you know they're they're attacking my my uh, state's coal reserves, or you know they want to put wind turbines up in the middle of you know in of the sound, and they're saying it's not going to affect rates. Isn't that kind of bogus? And I'm like, absolutely bogus. You know, there's never going to be a renewable project that's cheaper than good old fashioned coal or natural gas. There just isn't, um, at least not in my lifetime. But here's what else I heard about Alaska. How could you have reelected Lisa Murkowski? How could Sarah Palin not have beaten Mary Peltola or Nick Baggett, right? Um, and what is this stupidity around ranked choice voting and how do I help get rid of it? The good news was I was able to tell them on the ranked choice that we had a ballot measure coming up and that I expected that to be certified uh, within the next week. And obviously it was earlier this week. So that's good news. But, you know, John, um, those were the questions I got. Certainly Power of the Future related, but once they found out I was from Alaska, Oh my goodness! The questions about ranked choice voting were—they were, um, uh, were not few and far between. It was probably seventy-five percent of the conversation. Yeah. So you had a—you've had a kind of a front seat to Biden's attack on Alaska. He's got executive order after 
you know, executive order, you know, singling out Alaska in a lot of ways. Dan, Senator Sullivan talks about it a lot, especially on the Senate, yeah. which I love that he does. Um, talk to folks about uh, this administration and how detrimental they've been to Alaska. Well, you know, the U.S. Oil and Gas Association, Tim Stewart and, and crew have, have tracked just under 200 administrative and executive orders across the country in all 50 states, right, since Biden took office. Think about this. Out of just the under the 200 number, we have 57 of them here attacking Alaska. Uh, I mean, a quarter, over a quarter of all of the uh, job killing, um, you know, government overreach orders have come at the expense of this state. And so you know, we've seen it. We've seen and then we've seen when we get a win and Willow was a win. No doubt in my mind, Willow was a win. But Willow came at a cost instead of five. Um, uh, drill sites, they limited it to three. And the quid pro quo for that, for the environmentalists, was that 15.8 million acres of onshore and offshore lands that should be in the NPRA and the Chukchi Sea open for drilling and open for exploration someday aren't going to be. So it was, hey, you can have three instead of five, but we're going to take almost 16 million acres off limits and we're going to call that a win. Well, and, and all of us have called it a win, right? Um, it was a win, and it, but but when your wins are like that, you know when your when your friends give you those kind of wins, you certainly don't need enemies. And um, the Biden administration has just gone on the attack. I mean, the the roadless rule in the Tongass, the um, the King Cove Road, which isn't really a development project as much as it is a life saving project, uh, delaying the Ambler Road, um, you know, weighing in on on um, the the Palmer project in Southeast Alaska. I mean. If you go through Senator Sullivan's list of 57 attacks on Alaska, that's almost one every month. It's over one every three weeks of this administration. So every three weeks, you know, there's another bomb dropped on the state from this administration when it comes to resource opportunities. I can't wait. Can't wait for November. And I can't wait for January as long as things turn out the way that they should. When the American people rise up and say no more. No more government mandates. I like my gas stove. I like my, you know, my um, my combustion engine. I like my lawnmower that actually works for more than ten minutes at a time. You know, I like all this. And and quite honestly, John, if we if we don't see that, and the American people choose Biden again, the state of Alaska may be harmed forever. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like they want to just turn Alaska into a tourist postcard and have us stay in our corner and shut up. <laughs> Well, you know, I heard I heard a great analogy a couple of days ago, right? They want it to be a snow globe. Shake us up every once in a while. Let the snow kind of flutter up. See how the people interact in the globe. Then set us on the shelf and say, all right, now, you guys, you guys, we know better than you how to how to take care of Alaska. Oh, we're going to shake you up a little bit. Oh, you know, it's so pretty. But it doesn't really amount to anything. Yeah. So one of the things that recently happened in Alaska, Anchorage specifically, we saw a cold spell where they... Um, Mayor Bronson asked folks to kind of, you know, be mindful of the energy they were using. I had sure. a conversation with somebody and their argument was, well, if we had more wind turbines or those kinds of things, solar, whatever, here in Alaska, we wouldn't have that problem. Talk, talk to me about that as the energy expert in Alaska. If we had five more wind turbines in Anchorage, would that solve the energy problem? 
I'm laughing because it's laughable. If it wasn't so damaging to the, you know, the narrative and if, if idiot groups and idiot ideologues, um, whether it's the Alaska Center or REAP or, you know, the, the wind and solar associations, if they actually sat and thought about the science behind their stupidity, they would stop. So let me give you the numbers, right? When we had the cold snap in, in Anchorage here a couple weeks ago, from the 27th of January to the 26th of January to the 1st of February, that really cold spell. Um, wind did about one half of 1% of the overall output. One half of 1% of the overall energy output. Hydro, eh, about 7%. And that's the equipment project. Natural gas, the other 92, yeah. 91 and a half. Congratulations if you are banking on wind and solar and hydro, for that matter, to save you from cold. Now, I will say this. The, the green groups and the eco-left and the climate cult lobbies do a great job of throwing out things like, oh, we're going to be cheaper someday, but we just need opportunities. Well, they have $400 billion, maybe up to a trillion one, trillion two in the Inflation Creation Act, also known as the Inflation Reduction Act, to go out and spread that misinformation. So far, a whole bunch of money has been doled out from the federal government with no realistic benefits to America. Um, it's not, it's not going to be a solution anytime soon. Again. Less than one half of 1%. So one out of every 200 homes in Anchorage could have been powered by Fire Island wind during that week. Would you like to be the one in your 200-person neighborhood? Absolutely. Would you be jealous of the one if you were one of the other 199? No, you'd be cold. You'd be dark. You'd have busted pipes. Your dogs would be howling for heat. You'd be bundled up under as many blankets as you could get. Thank God that we had traditional energy sources like natural gas. I mean, we needed it because yeah. wind and solar. I, I, talked to, I talked to somebody who listened to Tony Izzo, the MEA CEO. He said that solar doesn't work out in the valley when it gets to 13 below. Solar does zero output at their big solar farm out in Willow when it gets to 13 below. It was under 25 below for a high for nine straight days during that time. Got to like 40, 45 out in Willow, below. Yeah. So they got for a period of nine, 10, 11, 12 days, Big so old zero, <laughs> zero, zero percent from a solar farm. And yet there are idiots. And I, I, I call them idiots because I mean, like the science doesn't support their position. The um, economics don't support their position. The market doesn't like their position. There's no battery storage at a utility grade. So even if wind and solar was somehow a panacea for everything, John, you couldn't store it. You couldn't, you couldn't have it available when you absolutely need it. Hydro, someday micro nuke, those have, op those have opportunities to be always on, dispatchable, storable. Wind and solar, again, you know, my guess is that my nine-year-old will be having these conversations when he's in his mid-50s. Saying, you know, my dad used to say that this might come around. It still might. I don't think it's going to be there when he's in his 50s. 
Yeah, one of the I watched some congressional hearing, I think, a year or so ago, and I'm probably going to botch this. But in general, there was a guy that wanted to produce trucks, you know, 18, 18 long haul, you know, big trucks and have them all be electric. And he was in front of some kind of council and and somebody stopped him and said, if you wanted to do this, you would use more power than our entire city uses just to do what you want to do with these 17 trucks that you want to do. And I think that sometimes the green energy movement likes a nice headline in the press, but sure. it actually doesn't do much good common sense uh, for folks like you and I that just need to turn on our lights or turn on our heater in our house. It doesn't really do much for that. No, I mean, you know, it's, there's, a, there's an old saying in the ESPN world called sound and fury signifying nothing. And that is really the green movement. Right. I mean, it's it sounds good. And the mainstream media loves to play with those words and loves to take those words as gospel because they're funded by the same ideologues that are pushing the green, you know, the green movement. Right. It's those people who want to start to control mankind. And it's the people who are anti-capitalistic. And it's the people who are really anti-American. America is the greatest country in the world, not because we are better than everybody else at everything, but we're energy secure. Energy underpins everything. We are technologically advanced, maybe not to the point that China and Japan and other countries are nowadays, but certainly we, we have that ability. Um, we understand how we got here to where we are, and we can get there again quickly if we change some governmental function and get rid of the overreach that the Biden administration has put into the, the process. And, and really, if we unleash American energy opportunity once again and don't throttle it down, we'll be the world's leading superpower forever and ever. As yeah. it is, we're kowtowing to China on supply chain. We're kowtowing to China on on uh, mineral and and uh, you know oil and gas production. Russia, the same thing. And we're weakening national security. We're weakening manufacturing security. We're weakening uh, energy security, and, and all of that comes down to families being at risk, not only for their jobs, but for price increases that are out out of this world, right? I mean, if you would have told me a couple of years ago, three, four years ago, that continental Europe would be looking at energy prices at the beginning of um, winter 2022-23, so a little bit over a year ago, that were 600 times Six times, 600%, no. six times higher than they were the year before that. I'd have been like, no way, John, that's not happening. In places in Europe, though, it was 12 times in one year, 12x. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, if my Chugach electric bill went up 2x, 3x, 4x, 5x, I'd be on the margin, more than on the margin. I'd be looking for relief. If my power bill, I mean, if my heat bill did the same thing in the middle of the winter, you know, it already cost me about $220 a month to heat my house. Can you imagine three, four, five X? Can you, can you realize, can you think about what a grand a month would be to heat your house in the winter? Like, yeah, no. You know, we could be headed that way, right? If the if we these folks think that by putting up a couple more wind turbines, it's going to solve the problem and, and, 
killing all these gas exploration projects. You know, it's, I mean, it's going to be there if we keep on acting like uh, we forget where energy comes from. Well, and again, that's part of the narrative, right? Is it, Part of the movement for the green people is to make natural gas so expensive with things like shortages and embargoes and to where the substitution cost for renewables starts to look good. Yeah. Um, as long as I have a breath, I will continue to fight back against that ideology because it's anti-market. It's, um, it's anti-logic. It's anti-science. Uh, and, and it's anti-human. I don't. I don't need to be part of this, you know, gigantic experiment around a a um, a false narrative that the world is going to end because we continue to be fossil fuel dependent. I live a high carbon lifestyle by choice. Everything that I touch throughout the day, whether it's my phone, whether it's the computer, whether hey, it's your the best, chair your I'm best sitting in, I made of uh, petroleum. Yeah, I mean, everything I'm wearing right now, I mean, everything <laughs> I'm wearing right now has some sort of petroleum part. Mind material on the zipper, I mean, you know, <clears throat> my glasses, your glasses, I mean, everything everything we're doing right now is there because of the abundance of traditional energy sources in first world countries. Period. Yeah. 1.7 million items a month you touch. Now, every time you pick up your cell phone, that's one, that's two, that's three, right? But the average American will pick up and touch 1.7 million items a month wow. that are manufactured from petroleum and mine materials. Life as we know it would, would, would change. It would be dramatically different. Well, Rick, one last uh, question to you here. Half an hour has gone by in a flash. What do you think the the biggest or one or two of the biggest opportunities in Alaska is? for energy. There's a number of them out there. Never been have been working on for years and years and years and years. What do you think of either the biggest one or a couple of the biggest opportunities are that exist out there for Alaska? Well, I think if if um if the green movement is serious about <clears throat> going green, right? And I use that in quotes and I, you know, kind of poo-poo the whole reason and rationale behind it. But if the green movement was really serious about going green, they should be all over the support for the Ambler Mining District, um, because there's copper up there, there's critical minerals up there, there's strategic, you know, um, components to this whole green revolution that they talk about. So the Ambler Project and the Ambler District is tremendously important, not only to Alaska and Alaska's jobs, Alaska's, um, you know, mineral exploration, but also to just providing domestic supply chains. Also up in that area is Graphite One, um, which would really allow for a domestic source of graphite meeting the entire nation's needs out of that one mine. Outside of that, though, John, I got to be honest, as, as we look at this, as we look at this threat of natural gas shortages in Cook Inlet, which affect you, which affect me, which affect well more than half of the state's population. Um, I don't know how feasible the. Alaska Gas Line Development Corp, you know, the, the line from the slope continues to be or will be. It's the, you know, kind of the 30-year, 40-year project that someday will make sense. I think someday might be now, though. Um, AGDC just recently announced that they'd like to go forward with a, a kind of a different solution, kind of a bullet line, bringing North Slope 
gas down to South Central and down to the rail belt to offset some of these potential supply shortages. Um, I think that needs an absolute look. Again, the economics are always going to be tough, right? We're talking $13, $15 billion for that project in the way that Frank Richards and AGDC announced this week. But I can tell you that from a consumer standpoint, we have to do something. Renewables aren't it. You know, we're not going to go build the Susitna-Watana Dam tomorrow because actually the environmental left hates hydro. We see it with the Klutna right now. Let's rip the dam out. What? Why would we do that? It's 90% yeah, of Anchorage's water supply. Didn't think yeah. that one through. Yeah, the Anchorage Assembly is, you know, might might win the um, Eco-Left Idiocy Award of 2024. And they did it in January. Like, I mean, like, what? They're like, what are, they're like, what are you thinking, here, guys? All needs 10 days. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Oh, we can come up with a different solution. We don't really need 90% of Anchorage's drinking water and, you know, about 6% of the overall energy mix for um, for South Central Alaska. It's really not that important. We'll save a few fish. Okay. And I know we're almost out of time, but I think those two projects are probably the two biggest. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, NPRA exploration, if we get a different president and he kind of can reverse some of the, the Biden administration's garbage, um, is going to be an area that we should continue to develop and continue to explore. Anwar, I still think is is feasible. Um, there's so many other projects in the state. Pebble, Pebble is certainly a, a trillion dollar asset um, that's on state land and should be developed. And the science says won't harm the fishery. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. Really, Alaska's opportunities are are immense. We just need government to do what government's supposed to do. Stop stepping on the throat of Alaskans and uh, let us responsibly in balance with nature and in balance with environmental stewardship, develop the God-given resources we have throughout the state. Nice. Well, where can folks find all of your information? Give us your website, your socials, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so we're at powerthefuture.com. We're a 501c4 advocacy and education organization. We will certainly take your money. Um, You can donate there right on the website. Uh, You know, so powerthefuture.com. We're on X under Power of the Future or at Power of the Future. Uh, my my handle is at PTF Alaska. Uh, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook, both under Power of the Future. We have a YouTube channel. Just search for Power of the Future. We're on SoundCloud. Search okay. for Power of the Future, and you can get my um, my weekly radio program archives uh, from the last four and a half years. They're on SoundCloud. And then I encourage anybody, anytime that you have questions, comments, you know, want to tell me I'm an idiot, want to tell me I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. A lot more of the first and not so many of the second. To, to email me at rick at powerthefuture.com. Um, I try to respond to everything, even if I'm called an idiot, because who knows? Maybe we get in a conversation and I change your mind. Who knows? Nice. Well, folks, I want to encourage you. I'm going to put the um, links to Power of the Future in the podcast description. Go check uh, Rick's workout if you have not already. He is doing such vital work here in Alaska. He's standing up for common sense energy policy. And I think that that's a valiant thing to stand up for. So, Rick, we wish you nothing but success here for Must Read Alaska. And for folks that listen, watch, and read, if you want to sponsor the Must Read Alaska show, just email me, John, J-O-H-N, at mustreadalaska.com. And until next time, I'm John Quick from somewhere in Alaska. Thanks, Rick. You got it, John. Thanks again.